tens of thousands of kids have lost a loved one across this country. Kids uh, have lost friends. It's an uncle's uh, next door neighbor. Good morning. This is Epicenter NYC. We connect our communities to news, information, and each other. I'm Andrea Pineda Salgado. The pandemic has changed a lot of things for a lot of people. It's taken a toll on our older neighbors, essential workers, and disproportionately affected communities of color. And while we often talk about schools and teachers, we may have not spent enough time talking about what this means for kids. Because kids' lives weren't immediately threatened by COVID, it's taken longer to tell their stories and to really understand how the pandemic will affect them long term. Today, Epicenter reporter Danielle Himes talks to David Woodlock. For more than three decades at the New York State Office of Mental Health, David has served as Deputy Commissioner for Children and Families. Most recently, he served as the president and CEO of the Institute for Community Living. Danielle and David focus on how the pandemic threatens to create a generation of children with long-term mental and physical health concerns. Before we begin, a quick message from our friends and sponsors at McKinsey & Company. The Shortlist is a weekly curated sampling of McKinsey's need-to-know stories about work, the economy, and culture. 60% of Black workers live in the South. So I think you are seeing companies start to say, why don't instead of expecting diverse talent to move to us, why don't we open up a hub in a more diverse location? That's Brian Hancock from the McKinsey Talks Talent Podcast featured in a recent shortlist newsletter. He's discussing the future of work. For more of our best ideas, quick and curated, check out the shortlist at mckinsey.com forward slash shortlist. That's mckinsey.com forward slash shortlist. And thanks. Now, back to the show. Here's Danielle and David. Well, thank you so much for taking a few minutes to chat with us. Sure, sure, happy to. So I hoped you could start by um, just kind of talking about your career. You've been working in making mental health care more accessible for almost five decades. Can you give us a little overview of what you've been doing? A little overview of 45 years, huh? (laughs) (laughs) You know, I guess it's been an interesting uh, journey. I uh, was hired on by the Office of Mental Health, and the first job was going into some of those old state hospitals and talking to people about leaving. Some of the lessons learned for me about whether it was in the child welfare world or in my Office of Mental Health days, um, that government really breaks down the human condition into these, what they hope are sort of bite-sized experiences. So you have an Office of Mental Health and an Office of Substance Abuse and an Office of our Department of Health. And most human beings don't experience their life that way. You know, if you don't feel good, you don't feel good. You don't necessarily feel good or bad just from the neck up. And And what we've really, uh, and throughout my career, really tried to do is help people get better um, across the board, not in parts of their lives. So we've really committed ourselves to moving, uh, in some ways, away from being a traditional behavioral health agency uh, into what uh, I'd call a whole health agency, where we really are beginning to, to try in every 
bit of work that we do to think not just about people's psychological well-being, but do they have enough to eat? Have they seen the doctor lately? Are they using substances? Uh, Do they have a roof over their head? Do they have somebody to talk to? Do they have friends? And uh, in my opinion, that's really what's going to drive that kind of thinking is really what's going to drive long-term change in the broader healthcare system. So so that's really what we've been up to. And I think have had uh, really tremendous uh, success little by little over the years of, uh, of getting people healthier, getting people to quit smoking, getting people connected with their families and friends and, um, and living in healthier, healthier lives. Yeah. And then to zoom in on the present a little bit, are there any other events aside from the pandemic that you've seen that have affected the mental health of an entire generation the way that this is likely to? Absolutely not. (laughs) There's 25 years or more worth of research around something called the adverse childhood experiences that point to, dramatically in truth, to the, the predictive power of when young people experience adverse events in their lives that can be anything from being a party, if you will, to um, a difficult divorce, to something much more serious like uh, child abuse or, or those sorts of things. And what we uh, know about what's occurred both for young people and older people is that all of us, to varying degrees, have had an adverse experience. I I think the depth that people have been touched by with this not only predicts uh, another generation with increased risk for both psychological problems, but also chronic health conditions uh, is very, very real. Okay, and and how can people kind of get ahead of that, knowing that there is a bigger risk? I think a couple of different things. You know, one of which is to to talk about it. And uh, I'm I'm very encouraged, frankly, by uh, how much more uh, over the course of, of my time in this business that society has come to acknowledge the importance of, of psychological well being. You know, whether that's more recently is Simone Biles and, and Michael Phelps and, and others. You, you just 10 years ago, 15 years ago, you never would have seen those things. So the good news in all that is I think there is, albeit very slowly, a, you know, a minimizing of the stigma about people benefiting from mental health interventions. Mm-hmm. And can you touch a bit on which aspect of the pandemic you think has been hardest on children? You know, the change in routine, social isolation, remote learning, fear. I mean, one of the things in those often replicated studies is the more of these adverse experiences you have in childhood, the greater the predictive power of your having an adult behavioral health or chronic health condition. And you mentioned some of them, the sense of isolation, the loss of loved ones. I mean, Tens of thousands of kids have lost a loved one across this country. Kids uh, have lost friends, and uncles, uh, next door neighbors, and the like. Many, many kids now, uh, and the data is slowly coming out, uh, have lost almost a year of schooling and are already behind. And in communities where the schools, uh, you know, were struggling to meet, you know, academic standards in the first place, that those problems are now 10 times worse. You may have seen in the paper, I think it was last week, how many kids didn't get the uh, laptops or the uh, iPads to be able to connect to schools. Um, So I think when you think about the lost academic uh, opportunities, about loss of loved ones, about exposure to violence, about the uh, 
uh, in my opinion, very righteous, I suppose, reawakening of a lot of the social injustice uh, that we see all over the place and the uh, protests on TV and the violence that was associated in Charlottesville and other places around that, the, the, the George Floyd horrors over and over again on TV. You think about it, you add up all of those things, and I, I think it's a hurricane. Uh, so I think it's really important, frankly, that we really begin to think about uh, a cumulative response to what is a cumulative heartache and head for so many kids and their families. Mm-hmm. And can you share what you think that might look like? Well, I mean, I think it's a lot of the things. So for I mean, assessing everybody is, you know, where are kids then academically and how can you help them? Where are kids psychologically and how can you help them? Where are they with their whatever sorts of ways that they've been coping with all of this over the last uh, year and a half? Because if you looked at last August to the previous August, there was a 330% increase in self-harm claims in self-harm claims for 13 to 18 year old kids covered by commercial health insurance wow and that's staggering and on 119 percent for overdoses wow so this is in the u.s ages up until 18 yep 13 to 18 and that data is, uh, is for the northeast Wow. So, you know, I think I think we've got to be thinking about coping strategies for kids. And so since we are a community newsletter and we believe, you know, in grassroots action and that kind of thing, could you perhaps provide me with some some things that communities can do to help children work through trauma that people can do, you know, on a much more basic level without waiting for government assistance and that kind of thing? Sure. Not all that long ago, right? You know, pejorative phrases like touchy-feely, you know, (laughs) were all viewed as sort of these uh, bad, soft, almost superficial kinds of things. I Today, they're probably almost as important as, uh, you know, if you have enough food in your refrigerator. But, you know, situations like this that are literally historic in their uh, in their proportion create a myriad uh, of emotions in, in all of us. And uh, I think the more that we can uh, realize we're all in that boat together and that while there's different opinions on some of this stuff, we're all in it together and we're all experiencing it together. And, uh, and all of those various viewpoints and all of this uh, matter. But keeping each other uh, safe and sane uh, is probably the best thing we can do for ourselves and for each other. You can learn more about the Institute for Community Living and David's career by visiting the links in our show notes. Next, we're sharing a story from one of our neighbors, like you. Today, I'm excited to introduce to you Masamid Khanum. Masamid is an intern here at Epicenter NYC and will be starting her sophomore year at Stuyvesant High School. She'll be sharing her experience as a high school student during the pandemic. I'm Masamid Khanum and I'm 14 years old and I'll be 15 in about 10 days, which is super exciting. I'm a rising sophomore of Stuyvesant High School, which is located in New York City. I grew up in the Bronx, surrounded by mostly other Bengali people, which helps connect to my cultural heritage. I've noticed that COVID-19 has detrimentally impacted me and my high school peers' mental health from what I've been hearing for the most part. Not being able to see anyone other than your family in real life really does limit social interactions. And I know we have all these social media apps, but to be honest, it's not the same at all. 
I saw this one survey that Stuyvesant did, and basically what they did was send their students a question on how their mental health was affected by COVID-19 and everything that's been going on. And not to my surprise, decreases were constant all the way through all age levels and all grades, which is very concerning. The hardest part about learning remotely was definitely paying attention. You can turn off your mic and your camera and just leave, or you can click another tab and do literally anything. There were so many occasions where I found myself finding something in class difficult, so I just went on my phone and gave up right away. The teachers couldn't even see that I was on my phone, so they couldn't say anything. And that became a very negative habit. In order to connect with my classmates during the pandemic, I utilized social media. It was my first year of high school, so I didn't really know many people, but it's common knowledge that my generation is very much heavily on social media. So I became more active on social media platforms, especially Instagram, and talked to many people from there. But then again, it's really not the same. For the upcoming school year, I'm definitely looking forward to seeing more people in real life more often and having more motivation to get work done. We are expecting to go back in real life full time this fall, but with the Delta variant, we really don't know for sure. And I have friends who are actually making bets on how they think it'll take for schools to go remote and how long it'll take. And as sad as they may be, their concerns are completely valid. As with the current vaccine, you really aren't fully protected. So we don't know for sure, but all we can do now is hope for the best. I am not a born and raised New Yorker. Well, raised, yes, but not born. I was born in Bangladesh. And my dad, he loves the idea of the American dream, which is why we moved to America in the first place. And he noticed the better job and education opportunities here. So that's why we're here. And New York City, why New York City specifically? That I'm not sure, but I'm very glad it's New York City rather than anywhere else. My favorite thing about living in New York City is definitely the hustle. I love how everyone is always on the move. The famous quote that the city, that the city never sleeps, it's true, and I love it here. I also love the diversity. There's a little bit of pretty much everyone. And that not saying that New York City doesn't have any flaws, because of course it does. But I'm really glad my parents chose to come to New York City out of all the other many, many places they could have chosen. My favorite New York City sound is definitely subway doors, because a lot of people see it as a huge representation of the city, as do I. The train tracks themselves can be seen as quite unsanitary, which is also another way people represent New York City. But inside the carts, you see all types of people of all origins and of all ages, and it's pretty neat to say the least. The pandemic isn't over. There are now questions about whether or not new variants will be able to affect kids. And this year, school could be anything from in-person with no masks to completely virtual. But what we do know is that there are ways that we can help the children in our community right now. As David said, the more we can encourage kids to talk about their mental health and their experience this past year, the better. And we'll do our best to highlight resources that you can trust. As we get ready to go back to school, make sure to subscribe to our sister newsletter, The Unmuted. Think of it as your guide to pandemic-era schooling. That's all for today. Thanks for tuning in. Our intro music is All the Pretty Horses by Karavika. 
You can find more of their music on their website linked to in our podcast description.